You're listening to the Anomalous Podcast Network. Multiple voices, one phenomenon. I am here to discuss the so-called flying saucer. In Washington, ghost-like objects dart across the radar screen at the CAA Traffic Control Center at National Airport for several hours. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. You are about to experience the awe and mystery. Welcome to another episode of Unidentified Aerial Podcast. We're part of the Anomalous Podcast Network. My name is Graham Randall. I'm the author of Dawn of the Flying Saucers, a look at aerial UFO encounters from 1946 to 1949 amongst other books. And with me today is Dave Partridge, editor of Shadows of Your Mind magazine, and one of my colleagues at UAP Media UK. Hello, Dave. It's the hottest day of the year, but it looks like sort of thing, and um, you're very hot and bothered. I'd say more bothered than hot, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, how are you? Good? (laughs) Yeah, I've had a a really hot walk to the beach today, and um, yeah, it was very, very busy. Um, Yeah, But it was was in the whole of the northwest. All of the uh, Northumberland goes up there, did he? Yeah, it seemed like the, the entire population of Newcastle was occupying the beach at one stage. You know, just more, more there was no beach to be seen in, in parts of it. <laughs> just red-skinned Englishmen. Yes, yes. Love it. Anyway, what what's on the agenda for today? Well, I thought we'd pay tribute to Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, believe it or not. So. <laughs> well. I reckon we should go, goodness gracious, green balls of fire. Oh, that's good. That's really good. My 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 idea was going to be uh, twinkle, twinkle, little star, but that, that's pr- pretty pathetic compared to what you've just come <laughs> up with. Yeah, so you know, green fireballs are something which I have never really come across, um, well, until I was reading Edward Rupelt's um, book on UFOs. Um you know, his review of his Project Blue Book era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating stuff. The fact that these green fireballs were seen over New Mexico, but they were only seen for a limited amount of time. That's right. I mean, the, we have to say that these are effectively were classed as a separate phenomenon from what else was happening at that time. So you're looking at about uh, the end of 1948 when this phenomenon first started being reported. And it's different from the flying discs that were being reported all over the United States at that time, and uh, specifically in the Pacific Northwest as well. So it's actually a different part of America that we're talking about here, aren't we? Yeah. And as people know, in New Mexico, you had Los Alamos um, laboratory. You had the um, White Sands testing area. And then all that kind of stark desert land where... Um, things like the Manhattan Project would have taken place. So for these green fireballs to just suddenly appear and only last a few months or so, it got me thinking, were they actually a phenomenon like the Foo Fighters or could they have been like a test craft of some kind or an experimental rocket or just standard bolide meteorites or something? And they're certainly in a very sensitive part of the United States where a lot of secret projects are being carried out and or had been carried out in the previous few years, but also not only are they doing or they were doing kind of atomic testing in that area, but they were then testing rockets that they either salvaged from German parts and, and brought across to America. So there was a lot of things going on in this part of the world uh, at that time. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when did they actually start? It was 1948. It was late 1948. Though, yeah. It? So the, if you look at the, the kind of records just to find out, the, as far as the official um, report into, well, they called it, when they looked into this officially, they called the project Project Twinkle. And according to the final report, it says that it started in December 1948. But actually, that's not quite correct. There were reports before that. And one of the first ones I can find is at the beginning of November 1948. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's certainly of a green fireball over New Mexico. But there are 
others in early December, and you can see them, um, you know, in the records, and you, you can find these green fireball reports. Fifth uh, December, there was a couple that night in off Las Vegas uh, near Montezuma, so there's a couple there, and you've got uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, as well, and other places, and it's all over a, a few days at the start of the month, but then that they, they start in earnest, if you like, and there's many more of these green fireball reports. Yeah, and what was interesting to me is they just had a low trajectory and they seemed to go in a straight line, but nobody saw them land, nobody saw them explode. They just kind of fizzled out, um, which also kind of got me thinking, what could it have been a flare? You know, some kind of, some GIs mucking about in the desert? It, it's, it's you know there would have been prosaic explanations offered at the time because people would have thought well yes could they be meteors could they be some kind of flares or some other type of activity which can be explained away mm -hmm. uh, but there were just lots of them and as you say they couldn't find reports of these things coming down to earth like you would see a, um, a normal meteor maybe you know striking the ground so somewhere somewhere you might have reported it whereas that just didn't happen and it was considered enough of a a thing, if you like, for people to get really interested in it. Yeah, because I suppose, I guess at that time, we've had the Kenneth Arnold, we've had the, you know, the Mantel case going on. Flying saucers are definitely very much within the public psyche at that time. Um, but as this is in, you know, the, the desert states, as it were, there's not a very large population down there. No, there's not. So you, you've got a limited number of witnesses, I guess, but enough to make it sort of stand out in so much as, you know, the number of reports that were coming out. And these aren't just from people on the ground. You're talking also with pilots as well who are seeing mm -hmm. them uh, as they're flying around in the course of their duties, whether they're civilian um, airliner pilot crews or their their military uh, pilots. And, and they're being reported different times, different places. Um, and it gets into early 1949. And I think there's... Obviously, Project Grudge um, had had become a, a thing then, and that, that had taken over from Project Sign at the end of um, in December 1948. But it actually officially hadn't really got going until February 1949. And actually, at about that time, so you're looking at February the 16th, 1949, there is actually a conference. What well, they call it, the Conference on Aerial Phenomena. And it's held at Los Alamos, which is right in the middle of this area. Obviously, that's to do with the nuclear testing, which was carried. Uh, that was all a you know, hubbub of activity for that kind of thing. Um, and you've got this this quite large conference. It's got 40, at least 14 different delegates, and they're from um, such diverse organizations and agencies such as the U.S. Fourth Army, uh, the Armed Forces Special Weapons Project, the University of New Mexico, the FBI, uh, the University of California, uh, the Air Force's Scientific Advisory Board, the Geophysical uh, Research Division, Air Material Command, which is based at Wright-Patterson, which was where uh, Project Sign and Project Grudge came out of, and then also the Office of Special Investigations. Um, that's the basically you know, the, the United States Air Force's investigation arm. Um, and then we've got out of those agencies, there's three people who effectively stand out in terms of these the, the representatives. Um, you've got Lincoln, uh, Dr. Lincoln La Paz, who will be key to this story of the green fireballs. Uh, he's uh, um, from the University of New Mexico. There's Dr. Edward Teller, and I'm sure people have heard that name before. He's a scientist who would later become known as, well, they called him the father of the, of the H-bomb uh, because he was a sig uh, significant contributor to the development of, 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 the, of, the, of the, the hydrogen bomb. And then also Dr. Joseph Kaplan, who was a, a world-renowned authority on the upper atmosphere. So you have fairly um, well-known in terms of people in their field who are brought together along with a whole load of military people and some other people from various places like the FBI, et cetera. Uh, and they're all talking about, you know, what this phenomena is. Um, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on, you know, meteorites or um, theodolites or anything like that. So for me, a green meteorite, I mean, there was an instance, I believe in Russia a few years ago where green fireballs shot across the sky. Um, but that, turned out to be a meteorite because they found out where it landed. Yeah. Um, um, but these, you know, I, how big were these green fireballs that were flying across? Because we have no, you know, from witness reports, each one said, oh, it was as big as a house or it was bigger than that. Or, you know, it's kind of varying sizes, which you will get from various different eyewitnesses, I guess. 
I guess. I'm going to shock you now. Um, in April 2015, uh, my wife and I saw a green fireball near where I live. A huge one going through the sky one night as we were driving home about um, 11 o'clock one night, um, a couple of miles south of where I live. And it was, you know, it was really, really plain in the sky going northbound. Um, and it, you know, it was kind of like driving along and Whoa, what's that, you know, sort of thing. Uh, but it was it was reported a couple of days later. I looked on the internet, and it turned out to be a meteor. And it, I think, it came down somewhere in Scotland. But you know, so that was the colour that was being produced by whatever it was burning up when it was coming through the atmosphere. I'm not an expert on this by by any um, no. stretch of imagination. But yes, back then in 1948, 1949, this concentration of reports was something that was really noteworthy. And it, clearly, there was enough information there for them to think, well. Are these actually meteors? Are they some? Are they not something else that we're not quite understanding here? Yeah, I mean, this was before the days of the contactee movement as well. So you can't really, you know, have people coming along say, "Oh, it's the Space Brothers are coming from Venus. They're sending out probes, um, things like that." But you know, they could have been probes. Who knows? Yeah, and that's certainly different from the disc reports because those look like kind of structured craft in many ways, and. Um, and even the, the balloon-shaped objects and the other things that were being reported back then are, are definitely different from green fireballs. These are mm. very, very specific. Yeah, and that, going back to that conference, I mean, you got three prominent scientists. That, as you said, Dr. Edward Tallow, who became known as the father of the H-bomb. Yeah. Um, you know, the various kind of military top brass are in on this conference, and there's definitely a sense that they don't know what it is. No, Clearly, it's it's nothing that they're working on, um, and the meteorite explanation seems to have fizzled out, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned before about you know the kind of the path of a meteor or or a, or a meteorite. It would be known in terms that it would come downwards, whereas these things seem to be going in a straight line rather than in an arc, which you'd expect from a from a meteor fall. And if you look at the notes in uh, that come together with this conference from from February forty nine, they talk about that. They talk about the fact that you know you would expect um in terms of azimuth and elevation for these things and you can predict where more or less it would come down or, or, or et cetera, et cetera. but i think they're still trying to get the grips with effectively what was happening they're talking um one of them was a a member of the american meteor society i didn't even know such a thing existed hmm. but apparently they're talking about about you know these things maybe coming down and if if like why they can't find them so there's a whole load of things going on here um but and then they're also talking about how long the, the phenomenon, the, the observations were um, to try and see whether there's any difference in terms of known um, sightings of, of meteors and this thing that was happening in the in the southwest of the United States. Yeah, and this conference happened in mid-February. It did, yeah. Um, at Los Alamos, as you said. And then, like, six months later, um, the Project Twinkle comes on board. That's right. Yeah. So they give it a, a give it a name to discriminate it from Project Grudge, which was much more of a kind of uh, an, a, a, another project, which was looking more at just the, the phenomenon of flying disks and other objects at large. Yeah, grudgingly by the sounds of it. <laughs> well, yes, um, there are various <laughs> sort of um, things I could go into about you know how it was so different from sign. Uh, in terms of manpower, but also in terms of what their remit was in in, in trying to explain away um, you know the phenomenon as a whole in terms of the Soviet more the Soviet origin that, that's that's certainly what they were the angle that they were probably coming from that they they'd almost kicked sign into touch because it was more kind of like open minded in terms of what what could be going on and the the higher ups the the, the senior you know people like Vandenberg just didn't like this kind of thing um and they 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 refused effectively to accept the estimate of the situation so it got to the point where sign couldn't function because what they were trying to come up with just wasn't sitting well with the, the hierarchy so therefore they went yeah okay we need a new project we need new better aims uh, different yeah. aims and yeah, uh, we need to find out what, you know, it's got a man-made origin. We just need to know what that is. So yes, uh, Grudge had a different ethos, if you like. It had a different end goal in mind. Whereas Twinkle, this is something completely different and it's given a separate name in you know, uh, Project Twinkle. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, from what I can remember of Twinkle, they set up um, a handful of 35 mil cameras Yes, to try and get photos of the subject. I mean, that's like... 
yeah, it's 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 a bit of a shot in the dark, isn't it? Really, it's um, you know setting up cameras in the desert somewhere and hoping that they're going to catch some some something going past. I guess it's almost like a kind of very very early sky hub, isn't it? I suppose you know where these things are kind of coming in from because you've got the trajectory planned from other, you know, other reports. So you kind of you kind of know where you want to put these cameras, but how, I mean, whereas something like Skyhub, as we know, or Sky360, as it's called now, yeah. whereas that has got an immense amount of computer AI power behind it, you know, back in 1948, they got virtually nothing, surely. Nothing, nothing that says a 35 mil camera can automatically, you know, flick on when something flies across the screen, flies that's across the lens. Hmm? Not true. That's, no, it's, it's very true. That's that's no. exactly what you know. That all that it was very rudimentary. They just had they set cameras up basically, I think, and just hope they would they would find something. Um, they'd actually um, decide, or they were suggesting that they would get the sing the signal call. Um, to to go out and do do all this kind of monitoring, and they were hoping to get I think it was fifty thousand dollars thousand dollars a year um, to to try and do this. I'm, I'm sure that it says that in the report somewhere, but I don't think they were ever going to get that kind of funding to 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 look at this. Um, it, you know, it was probably one of those things where yes, okay, you can have a limited amount of money or some time and and, and some equipment, but yeah. I don't think they were expecting much. You know, in, in the way 50, of results, fifty thousand dollars. It mentions that in the in the in the final report, funnily enough, right. um, it, it, it's it says that. Um, where, I'll just give you the quote here: uh, facilities for elect electromagnetic frequency measurements that were to be provided by the Signal Core Engineering Laboratories were not utilized during to, due to the fact that the frequency of occurrence of these phenomena did not justify the fifty thousand dollars a year transfer of funds to the signal call which would be required to carry out such a monitoring facility so clearly it, it needed a fair amount of money time and resources in order to set up a network that would have been effective yeah um, well most of that well, would have gone on cine film surely well yes but also i think there were from what it says there they were looking at some kind of electromagnetic um, monitoring um, to try and find out whether there was any kind of uh, signal, you know, coming from it um, uh, that yeah. they could actually detect in other ways rather than just like vis uh, you know visibly. So there was obviously other ways that I think they were trying to see if they could detect these things. But it, it sounds like they were just scratching around in the dark to try and cover all angles. But clearly, some were much more expensive than others. Hmm. Um, but the, you're talking about this is, this is jumping forward to the end of the program. So this is when they're, they're looking back at it and saying, you know, what happened. Um, but effectively, the, the, the line right at the start just says the gist of the findings is, is essentially negative. Uh, the period of observations covers little over a year. Some unusual phenomena were observed during that period, but most can be attributed to such man-made objects as airplanes, balloons, rockets, etc. Uh, flying birds, small clouds, and meteorites. Doesn't mention seagulls per se, but you know what I mean. So um, it just, and then it, it, it basically says. There have been no indication that even the somewhat strange observations, often called, quote, green fireballs, are anything but natural phenomenon. So it's quite damning, in other words. Um, they, they have spent some money, some time, some resources on the pro on Project Twinkle, but they've got nowhere. Yeah, you know, when I think of all these cameras, well, the handful of cameras that they had set up, I like to think that, you know, when you see in films, you have the, um, like, the speed, speed cops they just sat yes. behind a, a roadside sign yeah. with a radar gun and they'll occasionally get something but occasionally they'll just most of the time they'll just miss everything that's coming past i just get this vision of a scientist like manning this camera and he just gets so bored that he's he's reading a you know an amazing stories or a weird tales or something like that and he's just missing all these green fireballs going overhead yeah, <laughs> he falls asleep or something, and um, yeah. the next thing he knows, yeah, there's about three go past. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, it must have been at night time, and you know, as you say, they I don't know what, what the automatic kind of camera mechanisms might have been like that for triggering by light. Um, they had certainly had photoelectric cells in the late 40s. I mean, the Germans were in, uh, experimenting with, to do with weapon systems in the 40s anyway, that, that much is known. So, certainly, things like that were around, but how. I don't know how, how good they were in terms of being able to be triggered by a small streak of light going over the sky. I, I really I can't answer that question. 
Um, so I'm not entirely sure what type of equipment they were using. They do mention, however, that um, they were trying to sign up a lot of the um, test pilots in the area from Northrop, for the, air, the aircraft company, who were frequently flying in the Holloman Air Force Air Force Base area um, to try and report all observations of strange phenomena, but they reported nothing at all, um, and, mm -hmm. and they had cameras as well on board some of these aircraft. So th things were coming up negative. Maybe they were asleep as well, or maybe you know, maybe <laughs> they'd they'd start reading things when they were flying around yeah. uh, rather than looking for the green fireballs. Um, although, having said that. There were um, the, the Bell Aircraft Corporation. They had a, a missile launching place at, at Holloman, I think, as well. Um, and they, some of their personnel on the ground, had reported some of these uh, green fireballs. So, you know, you have reports coming up, but I think the information and the data that was amassed just wasn't good enough. And certainly, that they did expend film um, on these things, but apparently, the, the the triangulation wasn't good enough in order to try and work out where they were coming from, um, to try and get some kind of data together so they could try and you know do some analysis. Um, and I just don't think it really went anywhere. No, I mean pilots did see them. They did. You know, not they weren't all asleep at the uh, the uh, throttles so. And of course, there's one other thing um, that. You're looking, so when you get, this is, we're now jump forward basically to 1950 mm -hmm. when Project Twinkle actually was, you know, was underway. But you have to remember that the Korean War kicked off that year as well. So a lot of the military personnel who had been assigned to man these cameras were then reassigned because they were needed to do things to do with the Korean War. Not necessarily sent across to Korea, but they were certainly doing things you know, back home that were, yeah, yeah. were no, needed more point. for the war effort. So it wasn't so much of a priority, obviously, that the, 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 the Korean War took, you know, much more, uh, was much more important. Yeah. I mean, in, the, um, in Edward Ruppert's book on Blue Book, I did find a very nice quote, um, which is more or less a description of these green fireballs. Hmm. And it's from a private pilot who had been flying a Navion. Oh yeah, that's the aircraft. Yeah, an L nineteen. Yeah. yeah. Um, this pilot said, "If you take a softball and paint it with some kind of fluorescent paint that will glow a bright green in the dark, then have someone take the ball out about a hundred feet in front of you and about ten feet above, and then have him throw the ball right at your face as hard as he can. That's what a green fireball looks like." Oh, wow. <laughs> There's someone just throwing a ball in your face. Yeah, that, that's um, that's a pretty good description, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's me. It's actually something you can relate to, though, isn't it? As an ordinary person back yeah, then. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, if I guess our American listeners will be more familiar with batting cages and things like that. You know, you, I'm you sure a ball yeah. hurled at you. I mean, I play cricket, and most of the balls are like knee high. So, mm. now um, I'm going to throw another name in the mix here. Um, so we came up with three scientists before, and a name that might, um, obviously not this person, but the surname might resonate. Um, somebody who was um, involved in this program was a Major Edward A. Doty. <laughs> Shut up. Seriously. <laughs> and what relation was he to um, Richard Doty? So you got Major Doty in, the, in 1948. I guess he would have been 30-odd. Richard Doty's pushing 70. Let's do some quick maths on the air now. I'm going to say grandfather. His uncle. Oh, damn. Near enough. So Richard well, Doty's well, uncle was involved yeah. in some of the sort of discussions to do with the Project Twinkle. That's interesting. Very interesting. Oh, you met Richard Doty recently, haven't you? I did, yes. At, at the Awakening Conference, well, Ancient That's... Aliens Expo in Blackpool. I had a 10-minute conversation with him. Did you mention anything about his uncle, or did he mention anything about his no, uncle? No, he mentioned his father, Charles right. Doty. And his father was what? And another intelligence officer with the United States Air Force. Huh. Interesting. Interesting indeed. So when you look at the uh, Project Twinkle final report, uh, you will find uh, where it talks about the post-contractual inquiry, uh, Major Edward A. Doty's name appears several times. Several times. Several times. So, what was his role in Twinkle? Well, it wasn't to do with Twinkle. It was more, I think, that it was just he was on the outskirts of it, and he was discussed. It was discussed with him. So, I'll give you a quote here: twenty seventh of August, nineteen fifty one. Developments concerning aerial phenomena were discussed at Holloman Air Force Base. 
uh, Lieutenant John Albert, previously associated with the project, so I think we're talking about um, Twinkle here, had now been transferred from Holloman. Therefore, the project was discussed with Major Edward A. Doty, who had assumed responsibility. Major Doty, who seemed to be thoroughly acquainted with the situation, advised that there have been very few reports of aerial phenomena in the vicinity of Holloman since September 1950. So that's the first mention of him. Wow. And wow, then the, uh, the family line continued through intelligence. Well, there you go. And then he, there's various other quotes to do with um, land air, which is one of the kind of um, the triangulation methods, I think, they used in terms of the camera network, etc. cetera. Uh, he, he also men uh, he's mentioned in connection with conference uh, conference to do with that and some other bits and pieces as well. Um, the, the, the Project Twinkle final report is available online. Um, so if you can find a copy of you know, a PDF and have a look at it, you'll see his name. Cool. Yeah, definitely do that. And if when this goes out, if you want to tweet out the link, yeah, so people can see it. Otherwise, you know, you end up searching for Doty on the internet, and you know, yeah. you never know what rabbit hole you end up in. <laughs> yeah. Well, another thing about these fireballs were they were silent. Yes. Apart, from, actually, that's not strictly accurate, as the guy from Independence says. Uh, Independence Day says um, the November or one one of the nineteen forty eight reports. It might be. I think it was the November one. There was a hissing sound associated with the report. So uh, there's certainly one of them, at least, and there might, there might be others, but there's one certainly talks about a, a sound that's a, that was heard with the um, with the green fireball. Punch it. Looking, yeah, yeah, I'm just look, I'm just looking for it now. Actually, I can't quite find it, but yeah, there's definitely a, it actually talks about a hissing sound. So, yeah, right, yeah, because but I might be an outlier. Never. <laughs> <laughs> never, never, Graham, never. I guess meteorites, you know, when they do kind of when they're that low in the atmosphere, they are mm. going to make a fair amount of noise, and they're going to worry livestock as well. But these, you know, when they're silent. You know, there's nothing, nothing to, uh, nothing to kind of relate them to if you yeah. if you're a witness on the ground. I guess not. I mean, from what I'm aware of and in my limited sort of knowledge of, of meteors, I mean, if you talk about shooting star, you're talking about grains of sand. You know, they're, they're tiny, um, mm -hmm. and they're so high up in the atmosphere. When you see when they flash through the through the sky and they burn up in a couple of seconds, it is you're you're talking about a few grains of sand, and that's really all it is. And I think some of these bigger meteors. Um, you know, weren't probably not very large, um, and of course they're burning up all the time. So they probably they might well be. It depends on how close to the ground they are. But I think if they're really high up in the atmosphere still, then you yeah. probably won't hear them because they're, they're they're quite high up. I mean, it's like a jet aircraft. Yes, okay, if it's if it's up at thirty seven thousand feet, you know, when you see the trails behind them, sometimes you can't hear them. You know, you'd have yeah. to be directly underneath them and listening. Um, oh, yeah, and if you've absolutely. got a bit of ambient noise around you, you can't all, you can't always hear them. Um, you know, sitting in the park today near, near the beach, uh, I was mm. watching like you know trails going overhead, um, and very few of them I could actually hear, um, but you yeah. know you could see them. So yeah, you, it's you, you might not hear the sounds to do with things which are very very high very high up. No, true. Um, guess what? I know someone who loves green fireballs. Goodness gracious. And yes, absolutely. And I reached out to him and invited him on, and he glad well, he very kindly agreed to give us some time on this Sunday afternoon. I've got uh, a fair idea who it might be. Yeah, and I'd like to say good evening to Witness Citizen, also known as Sean Rush. It, close, yeah, Rush. 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 Yeah. Yeah, Sean, how are you Hello, doing, Sean. Good, how are you two? Not bad. We're uh, yeah, stuck in Jerry Lee Lewis territory <laughs> hot days here yeah sure what, what's the temperature like in um is wisconsin, uh, wisconsin uh it's about 80 80 degrees sunny it, it's nice it's pretty nice yeah and air conditioned air conditioned yeah 80 yeah, really nice. to me is is kind of too hot i don't like that but we don't have that in the uk much very few houses seem to have it here so we just we what, air, air conditioning no no having offices and shops Malls and things like that, but the average yeah. family house, no. Any a window? Yeah, any in, any inkling I've ever had to move there is now gone. <laughs> <laughs> along with along with the rest of the U.S. audience listening to this. Yeah. Anyway, we've got you here to to talk about green fireballs. So, 
Sure. Yeah, uh, green fireballs were um, installed seemingly uh, kind of a main an anomaly. And I don't just mean uh, green fireballs as in green meteors, because those um, have been seen, you know, and still are being seen. Uh, but at that time, um, it was kind of a, its own phenomena. It started seemingly started in 1947. Um, and they ran something that the U S air force ran something called project twinkle till up about 1951. Um, and the person who had that up was Dr. La Paz, who was actually from the university of, uh, New Mexico. And he was the professor in the head department of meteors and mathematics at the university of New Mexico. And he actually ran it with captain Melvin Neef from the 17th district OSI out of New Mexico, I believe. And they got a lot of reports. They had, um, you know, probably too many to count over 150 reports, but not all of them were of this specific green fireball. Now the, there is a couple interesting characteristics of this green fireball. Uh, the green fireball was, uh, it had a greenish hue, but it was mainly green yellow, which Dr. Lopez said at that time has never been observed before. Um, green blue uh, has been, or green. Actually, on the spectrum, another thing about the, the color, uh, they actually would bring a color spectrum to the witnesses that they would interview. And on one episode, I think it was in December, I want to say December 30th, possibly, they interviewed hundreds of people. It, it was probably one of the bigger episodes that they had but they've interviewed a lot of people in regards to the green the the greenish yellow uh fireballs and they would bring a color spectrum chart and if, if they look if they're looking for the colors is that because they can work out where it's a meteor because the color if i remember rightly is the color to do with what's burning up the kind of composition of what's burning up that's in this case that's kind of what they figured out by doing this so most people picked on the color spectrum it was uh 5218 you'll have you can just look that up color spectrum 5218 it'll give you the color but what was interesting about that to them is it's uh, relatively close to what copper salts look like in a bunsen burner so so that was very interesting uh another aspect of this was these only 90 percent of the time would go two to three seconds they would last visually were classic meteors um are all over the place as far as duration, uh, as far as when you can see them. And a lot of this I'm grabbing with this information I'm grabbing is from a Los Alamos conference that uh, Dr. La Paz had in 1949 with people from the fourth army, air force, special weapons group, FBI, um, and a lot of about four or five people from the university of California. One of them was actually Edward Teller who worked on the atom bomb. Yeah, that's the February sixteenth um, uh, yeah. conference, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And there I were, just there looked were up that three of them. Yeah, I just looked up that color. Um, closest, if anyone you know is good with colors, Kelly Green is the uh, official official name. <laughs> that wouldn't help me at all. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's like an Irish green. Oh wow! Look at oh, that. Right. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, and a couple other things is they would be completely horizontal. Um, the sometimes the light was visible up to four four hundred at distances up to four hundred uh, miles away. Uh, there was never any sound or um, fragments found. Mm. So that was another interesting thing. If a meteorite falls or something else falls, they're going to find fragments. The sound part of it actually mentioned with uh, some of the meteorite falls. A lot of people who actually witnessed meteorites were first. Um, uh, were first kind of brought onto that something was happening by this kind of weird sound that was coming. So that's interesting too. Um, oh, it so wasn't just New Mexico, was it? It was New Mexico, Texas. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. South, Southwestern um, America. One thing that they found that was interesting with this and, and while they, why they wound up kind of shutting down the whole twinkle thing. Well, first of all, twinkle kind of turned into a more of a UFO in general thing than just the green fireballs. They started looking at other things that would come along like red fireballs, white stuff, uh, UFO reports, and it, it got kind of uh, beyond the green fireball thing. But they stopped seeing green fireballs once uh, uh, a suitable um, 
kind of tracking system been, was put in place. So they actually put up cameras. They contracted with uh, a company called Land Air uh, to take photographs. Um, I think it was from maybe Holloman Air Force Base they were doing that. Um, and as soon as they set all this stuff up, those kind of reports stopped. That's, that's <laughs> amazing. So they, they, they set a network up to actually track these things, and then the phenomenon stops. It doesn't go away anywhere. It doesn't appear anywhere else, does it? It just no. stops altogether. There was one report in Detroit, 1951, Lapaz mentioned, um, where it had the characteristics of it, and a lot of people saw it uh, over that area. But, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure if they ever categorized it officially as as that, you know, and over the hundreds of reports that they received, Lapaz was able to narrow it down to about, uh, I think he said like 10 to 12 that actually fit what they were specifically looking for as far as this greenish yellow uh fireball and he went to his deathbed basically thinking it was a u.s secret weapon you know um and he of course he'd be the person to know as well because he'd have a good idea if they were simply you know ordinary meteors because that was what helped was his field of expertise right and and yet for him to come out with that kind of statement it's quite it's quite something the, the there's I found, you know, and another thing, there are a couple of things that they thought it was. One, La Paz said was it, it seems like maybe they were defensive maneuvers um, from a higher U.S. command and they were practicing around pretty much what you defend atomic installations mm-hmm. like Los Alamos because they're seen over these places a lot. The one pushback he got there that I could see was from Dr. Kaplan, who actually headed up um, a research division for the Air Force. He was, very, an he was an atmospheric specialist, wasn't he? Yes, and he very strongly said, "No, that's not the case," because he'd know about it. You know, yeah. you know. Does that mean that's true? I don't know, but that's what he said. Um, they also were trying to think maybe it was. Uh, uh, I don't know how to say this word. Geminate shower. Uh, uh, Geminids, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the one of the known um, okay. showers, yeah, like the Taurids and uh, and some others. Yes. So I guess there are 14, 414 observations since nineteen fifteen at the time of this conference, and uh, since then, not uh, one report of those were were green. Yeah, so, I mean they're fairly well known in terms of time and and usual trajectories that you, you can tell like the quadrant of space that these meteor showers come from because they they tend to originate if I'm right if I remember rightly from certain uh, bodies which have either broken yeah. up or, or from whatever they come from. So they know to a rough idea the dates uh, and the times and the kind of quadrant from the sky you'll see them come out yeah. of it and which way they go. So I mean you can st- you still see some of these today. Um, yeah. to a point so you know they're known phenomenon uh, especially if you're you know an astronomers and i guess um, a lot of these sightings were seen around that time when when that was coming around oh yeah, shower, yeah, which, no doubt, which yeah is another interesting thing like if you were to set up secret weapon testing would you use that <laughs> as like as a cover. Uh, yeah you know and then the fact that they stop right when they set up a thing to observe it specifically it's it's very interesting you know? And yet it's another one of these things that has never come out of the woodwork. It's not something that's actually known now, is it, you know, 70 years right. later, mm-hmm. uh, 75 years later, that you would have thought that if this had been some kind of special weapon or special sure. defensive op- um, you know, apparatus, then there might have been some inkling of it now. Yeah, right. But, but, but it's still hard to wrap your head around. Like what, like all the other phenomenons, we still, you know, hear kind of reports that resemble it, whether it be like a flying saucer shape or a cigar shape or or whatever like you hear about these throughout the decades and there's reports of them throughout the decades but this greenish yellow hue fireball that's it you know it's like it came and went so even if it was like a, a secret like you said like a secret weapons project like we would we would have seen it like in action or it'd be like a known thing or people in the Air Force be like, oh, yeah, we use these now. That's the same color, like, you know, or whatever. But unless it nope. was a failure, of course. Yeah. Unless and that's it was... why I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> but that's even more of a reason to say say what it yeah, is, right? Because we're not using it. Did Dr. LaPaz ever work out where they were coming from? I mean, he, he couldn't find out where they were going. He found no traces of them on the ground. But did he ever plot 
you know, from the trajectory, kind of the area where they were appearing from? The only thing I got was from the north. Right. So mm-hmm. that that's pretty much it. Yeah. Those Canadians again. <laughs> yeah. Well, or like Utah or something. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> <laughs> um, the um the the project twinkle final report is actually quite long it, it goes to well over 30 odd pages it's almost like 40 pages with the reports at the end um dave and i were just discussing a certain name that crops up in the uh in pro- in the in the twinkle report uh, before you came on um and it's um richard doty's uncle major edward a doty yeah is is that really his uncle apparently so wow yeah cuz i've seen that name a bunch since then, uh, since looking into this and uh, like kind of going over this paperwork again recently, I, I, I literally had that thought again today. Like, Edward Dottie, what is, you know, what a coincidence. And they, and I think they worked out of the same OSI district. It's Hol- yeah, Hol- um, Holloman, isn't it? Yeah, so you're close or something. Yeah, yeah. But that is very interesting. So you just get born into something like that, apparently, huh? <laughs> it's uh, the, yeah, the the um the, the the dynasty or the dynasty of um yeah, of, of ufo investigations my son's son my son's son son we all investigated ufos and spread out disinformation yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just, sean i was um mentioning well i was quizzing graham about pilot encounters with green fireballs yeah um there okay. seem to be very few reports where p- pilots actually got close enough to see anything other than this green greenish hue and this big bright light the what i can pull from there is not a specific report but more of a synopsis of the types of witnesses that saw these at, according to la paz um mm-hmm. uh, ae uh, uh, CC inspectors, which I think were atomic energy uh, inspectors. And I wanted to figure out what this meant, but UAL pilots. I don't uh, United, know. United Airlines. Okay, so United Airlines pilots, uh, special agents, which I know is an OSI agent because Captain Neef uh, saw one of these, as well as Dr. LaPaz. So, you know, it's happened, but um, there was a... There were so many reports around that time that it's it it takes it would take a solid year to probably look through all of them, and not mm. just the green fireball reports, but I mean like uh, New Mexico reports. Yeah. Like I have a file with over seven hundred some documents of just New Mexico reports. You know, Oof. it's pretty pretty insane. All and a lot during that time. Yeah. Because the the army at that point they didn't really want to know anything about this, did they? Because they just thought, oh, it's a waste of resources. Why are we setting up cameras? And when we got North the, Korea to kind of no, that's that's not true. The fourth, well, it depends, you know, because the army is big. But it's the fourth army that was very interested in it because part of their um, uh, part of their responsibility was protecting these establishments, um, which was uh, Los Alamos. Um, the other one in New Mexico, Sandia, is it based? Yeah. yeah, that's um, yeah. I think maybe Camp Hood or something as well was another one. Um, I think Oak Ridge maybe that's as ten- well. That's, ten- that's Tennessee, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Ridge. But the fourth army had, uh, it, it was their prerogative to, to, you know, protect all these places. And that's why they showed up at the Los Alamos conference. And I mean, yeah. four of them did major win, major Godso and captain Neve. So, they definitely had an interest in it because they had to protect the places. And a lot of these people were pretty freaked out because they were going right over their establishments, you know, like Los Alamos and all that. So, and the investigations, like some of the investigations were gigantic. One of them uh, was like uh, 1,600 miles worth of ground they covered in an investigation. <laughs> you know, six large Hundreds square, square miles, yeah. It, uh, well, square well, circle, I didn't check, but <laughs> quite large. Yeah. So uh, d- these are big investigations. Like they, they're really uh, definitely concerned about it. But in the end, uh, they said it was a failure. But you know, one of the interesting things is, and I think we find this now too. 
like at that Los Alamos conference, one of the one of the people there um, was actually told La Paz, we want you to find meteors. We want you to find that it's a meteor, you know? Wow. Yeah. So they could just like, write it off as uh, <laughs> oh, it's just natural phenomena. <laughs> you mentioned like pilot reports before. I found one. Uh, just I'll read this one out quickly if you don't mind. And um, this is 19th February 1951. A C-54 pilot, oh, that's a transport aircraft, uh, reported a green flare or a rocket observed in the vicinity of Rodeo, New Mexico. Mm. Uh, its motion was vertical and it passed the plane at 9,000 feet. Investigators believed it to be a meteor. So it was obviously that's a different trajectory. So that might well have been a meteor, mm-hmm. but that's one of the few reports I can find of actually aircrew reporting these things. They, they do mostly appear to be on the ground. Uh, the, the people who have seen them. Yeah. I think maybe cause they were, it had a lower uh, trajectory. Maybe they were closer to the earth. Or they were just because they were very quick, like a couple of seconds. And yeah. that was it. Oh, gone. So yeah, they were, I think, yeah. So they would move three to 12 miles per second. That's really quick, yeah. That's pretty fast. Well, it couldn't have just been really small and then just burnt up and fizzled out. And that's why you didn't find any uh, traces. Could be. Could be. I found one FBI report where uh, they were... I wish I had this readily on me, but but the FBI was looking at this stuff too. At the time, their, uh, their responsibility in the UFO investigation was to... Um, find uh, crashed um, objects hmm. like saucers, but uh, they were pretty pissed off about it because all they'd ever find were hoaxes, and they didn't want anything to do with <laughs> yeah. it. You know? But one person they asked about this, and I fr- wish I had more details right now, but um, the person said seemed to know about this stuff, and they asked him, and he goes, "Yeah, well, you're not going to find anything." Like he just was very, yeah, like took on kind of like the uh, the all-knowing position but you know it never went farther with the person so who knows but it could be those little clues that get you somewhere who knows yeah because hoover j edgar hoover was uh director of the fbi at the time he was very annoyed um that like the army and the air force were keeping all this kind of secret as far as he was concerned and he wanted to get his hands on one of these crashes and that's why he was instructing his agents you know if you hear about a crash go out there see if we can get our hands on it yeah there there was well i know that they were they were supposed to help by by going after that stuff and in one of them what and they were one there was one instance where they were pretty irritated because that was what they were supposed to do although yeah. there was one recovered by the army and they wouldn't give the fbi access to it that's it and they were like a- oh, why are we doing this if this happens and we can't even look at it. <laughs> you know, there's always been a rumor about which one it was, isn't there? Well, the, this I'm just going by actual FBI memorandums yeah. as far as them being, uh, you know, told to look after crashes or go yeah. after crashes. But So they get, they get in um, February 1952 and the, um, there's a, a request to actually declassify Project Twinkle. Uh, and this is, um, I think, from the Air Research and Development Command of the United States Air Force. Um, and it's turned down. Uh, they say, no, we still need to keep this classified uh, for various reasons. Apparently, chief among that is that no scientific explanation for any of the fireballs and other phenomenon was revealed by the, the final Twinkle report. And that right. some reputable scientists still believe that the observed phenomenon are man-made. So yeah. you know, there's this kind of overall feeling that actually we're not quite sure and it could be something that's like artificial um but it does that mean that a russian you know because that was obviously that they were still the bogeymen back then weren't they and right they, you know they, they were still wondering whether because grudge still had this kind of idea that there might well be uh russian in origin uh, all these flying discs and all the rest of it and and, and they're still thinking no we're going to keep this under wraps still uh we can't tell anybody about this uh, project that we've we've, we've undertaken yeah. to try and find out what these things are um, because we think there still might be man-made. Yeah. Um, well, good luck. I don't think they ever found out, right? But, nope. <laughs> but, <laughs> nope. but the interesting thing is, uh, I think the study turned to, in that Twinkle report, uh, uh, geo uh, geophysics, I believe, through uh, Cambridge. I think they continued to study it. Um, 
like like you're saying. Uh, but and this is kind of an instance where these investigations kind of go off into these different areas uh, of like private study, like Cambridge, you know, um, and Battelle in Project Stork and all these people who probably have the real information. Like, um, so it's very interesting that they may not have wanted to go public with it because these other organizations were still studying it, almost covering for them, so to speak. Yeah, there's a, certainly a further letter, and this is dated March 11th of March 52, and this is part of the reasoning again for not declassifying the program. And they talk about it being part of a, lo- a larger program known as Project Grudge. So there's a link there, and, uh, they say it's, and they say it's been established to investigate reports of all unidentified flying object sightings. Project Grudge is still in the investigative analysis stage and has not been thoroughly evaluated. So you know, even though Grudge was pretty much moribund by that stage, yeah. In fact, it was on the point of being being changed into Blue Book in March '52. Um, you know, they, they still say that well, we we just don't know what's going on. That's a huge admission still that they yeah. you know, that we don't know what we're looking at. And Twinkle's part of this, therefore we can't um, declassify it. Yeah, and that does say a lot, doesn't it? Because if they were pretty sure that this was all you know um, BS or whatever, yeah. they'd they would be come saying, out and said, wouldn't they? Yeah. It'd be like, yeah, here's the reports. Here's a bunch of people thinking airplanes are aliens. Take a look, you know. But they, they, yeah, but they really weren't sure, I guess. So a lot happened during that time. And 1952 is one of probably the the biggest, is the, was the biggest year most definitely for, for UFOs. I mean, you would know about it. You wrote about it. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. But quick plug, I suppose. Quick plug for for two books. Yeah, if you want to if you want to read about the forty six to fifty two um, aerial phenomena and all the investigations that were going on back then, then yes, Dawn of the Flying Saucers and Flying Saucer Fever do cover that period of history. Uh, but Sean, you do as well um, through your podcast. You, you you dig out documents from this period of time, and you are a, a mine of information about that period as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm- yeah. I'm all over the place, so I find it hard to focus on just one thing because there's so many interesting things throughout the course of it. You know, I just finished uh, pulling all the unidentified military encounters I could from the archives, Project Blue Books, uh, which I could find 89, and some of them are really actually really difficult to find because you can only find by searching, you know. Um, but a lot of them are missing too, you know. There's so many that they could have been just uh, put in the wrong folders or the wrong cases, but some are just plain up gone. They're missing. And I I mean, I found documents that state that the CIA took ownership of some of them. Um, And we know that, um, uh, you know, some of them were taken by, um, was it Kehoe perhaps? Um, So yeah, it's, it's can be quite frustrating too. It's like, come on, man. I know you wanted to write a book or whatever, but dude, make a copy, give them back. Cause one day in 2022, we're going to be here looking for those and they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's, as you say, it's an important part of It's an important time in history and there's a lot going on then. And people who are more focused on things, which are happening from say 2004, 2017 onwards, uh, if they're just getting into the game now and they're, and they're just reading about this and getting interested, then there's got a whole decades of history beforehand. And as you say, that you know, the, the late 40s, early 50s were a really important time about trying to understand yeah. what was happening. And then you can put that into context. And so you can understand what's happening now uh, in terms of you know, the new investigations and the kind of hopefully the mistakes they're not going to make, repeating the mistakes of the past. Right. Um, so, yeah, the, the more we know about what happened back then, the more we can put into context what's happening now. The, Have you got any, anything else you want to um, ask um, Sean, Dave? Well, I was just remembering that in the Project Blue Book TV series, they did an episode on green fireballs, um, and their investigation led to White Sands missile testing range. Um, but I'm not going to do, not going to give any spoilers. You're going to have to dig out the episode and watch it yourself. Well, a V a V two missile, because that's effectively what they were looking about with back uh, in the late forties, mm. uh, wouldn't have caused these kind of sightings. Um, you know. It, it, v2s don't fly horizontally at that kind of altitude <laughs> so they do not and that they show it definitely um fills in a lot of blanks with some sensational uh details most definitely George but it's Coleman. <laughs> but it's, it's very it's a very cool show 
Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sad that it ended when it did. But um, mm, yeah. episode six of the first series, if people want to go and check that out for some okay. spurious explanations about the green, fu- green fireballs. I will say that the number one takeaway for me from, from looking at uh, not only the green fireballs, but all the UFOs was this little piece from 1952 uh, written by Rupelt that says only 7% of objects have been could be positively identified only seven percent um but they told the american public 20 percent remain unidentified because all the others were possibly aircraft possibly balloon probably aircraft probably balloon which maybe they could have been but maybe they weren't but that's uh kind of deceitful because they could only they only knew for sure seven percent of the unidentified that's, object report. That's extraordinary. Yeah, it's truly wow. extraordinary. Well, do you want to wrap up, Graham? Yeah, we, um, Sean, you've got thank you. Anything else to say about nope. green fireballs? Have you got any, a final word on the green fireballs apart from the Rupelt quote? Uh, yeah, no, the green fireballs were, were uh, one of many anomalies that happened in, in the sky that you know we might have to just um, admit we might not ever find the answer to. You know, um, yeah. and I think the more we can admit uh, that we don't know, you know, um, I think the better off we're going to be because we don't know what they were. Were they a secret project? Were they some sort of um, panspermia? Were, <laughs> were they, you know, who knows? We don't know. But, um, you know, it, if we can kind of look at uh, today's age of UFOs the same way and just kind of go out with any, uh, you know, predetermined uh, idea and just look at it in a scientific way and see what the deal is, the better off we're going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sean, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, so, I did my best. You know, I'm not. No, a, I'm, thank you very much. And I recommend that everybody check out Sean's podcast, uh, Witness, Witness Citizen on YouTube or visit witnesscitizen.com. Check Thank out you. some of his reports. Outstanding work with the old material. Thanks for having me, guys. No, thank, thank you, Sean. All right, Graham, do you want to wrap up? And I guess you're moving in a couple of weeks. So I am, yeah. So I am I'm not even sure where I'm going yet. I'm probably heading somewhere either in the Thumbled or County Durham um over the next two weeks and then hopefully getting into Scotland uh, for the final move next year sometime. So yeah, busy time. Um so that's been a really good episode. We've discussed a bit about the green fireballs but we've also learned a lot from sean so it's been a, a really useful hour and i hope everybody's enjoyed listening to the three of us talking about it thank you very much dave um it's been thank a pleasure you, as and, always uh, we shall come up with a different topic for the next program and i uh, hope to see you all there yeah Thanks we can very tell much. you what it's not going to be oh can it's we tell not you what's going to be the shaver be? mysteries shaver mysteries we were uh, going to do one especially for a couple of people in ufo twitter on the shaver mysteries however it's absolute rubbish so no not reading well, any more on that you can't say fairer than that <laughs> it's absolutely no, it's rubbish terrible so yeah okay we will come up with a um with a suitable topic and we will um you will see you there so thanks very much dave any final thoughts Oh, yeah, Sean was right when he said, you know, it might be just one of those mysteries that we've got to leave. Um, they didn't have the answers back then. We're sure as hell not going to get the answers now unless they happen again. It's a little known uh, phenomenon within a phenomenon, as far as I'm concerned. It's something yeah. I've known about for years, but not something I've really delved into too deeply, nor have I had, I guess, to say, uh, to really too much of an interest in because for me years ago i did think they were simply just meteors that had been miscategorized but learning about a meteor specialist who then came up with the the, the feeling that well they're, they're man-made somehow that that really did sort of mess with my mind quite a lot um so if somebody like that's coming up with that kind of statement then there must be also more to this than yeah. just the eye but as you say and as sean says we're probably not going to be able to work it out at this juncture in history so with that um we'll both say goodbye bye folks see you next time I am here to discuss the so-called flying saucer.
Washington, ghost-like objects dart across the radar screen at the CAA Traffic Control Center at National Airport for several hours. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. You are about to experience the awe and mystery 